Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Canada's relentless appeasement of China, our food delivery apps bankrupting restaurants, and the government's vilification of law-abiding gun owners. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Breaking news bulletin, breaking news for you. Dr. Teresa Tam says Canada was wrong to have not acted sooner to close the border. You think? Oh my goodness, this is like sky blue dog bites, man. This is like the least newsworthy revelation ever. Actually, I suppose it's newsworthy that the government is admitting it was wrong here. Dr. Teresa Tam, the chief public health officer of Canada, said, quote, I think that in hindsight, yes, I think people could act faster and maybe in the future we will take different decisions. The specific approach that she was referring to was about the delay in barring foreign visitors from entering Canada. This comes just, you know, the day after Canada has reached an agreement to extend the border shutdown with the United States. And finally, a level of contrition, or at the very least, a recognition that, hey, we should have done this sooner from public health officials. And this is where whether you respect Dr. Teresa Tam's credentials or not is irrelevant. She's offering advice to public policy leaders, which means she needs to be given the level of scrutiny that you would give to politicians. When politicians are deferring to the public health officer, you have to have some skepticism and scrutiny to the public health officer. That's my position here. And I recognize she's a a smart woman, an accomplished woman, but when she is lecturing people about racism, when she is saying that we need to avoid anti-Chinese bigotry, which yes, I agree, at the same time not taking things seriously like the threat to the border making a number of decisions, her and her team, it's not just her, that have been reversed, whether it's on masks, whether it's on border shutdown, whether it's on travel, human-to-human transmission, all of these things. And then we are at the point now where everyone in Canada knew what the government is finally waking up to, which is, hmm, we probably could have done something sooner. Now, you may say what the benefit of this is doesn't matter anymore, but I would say it does, because for starters, we need to have a preparedness if something like this, heaven forbid, happens happens in the future. But more importantly, it means that we have to stop letting Justin Trudeau get away with, oh, I was following the advice of public health officials when he uses that as his excuse for everyone. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Trudeau is going to be using that like for the next three years or however long he's in office this term when someone says, oh, uh, Prime Minister, you know, why did you decide to raise the uh, top income tax bracket and all of this? And he'll be like, well, I, I was following the advice of public health officials. I, we'll, we'll have it on a montage. And I think he's just going to be so used to it that no matter what, you know, why did you designate that historic lighthouse in PEI? Uh, well, uh, as you know, I was following and will continue to follow the advice of public health officials. But it's actually laughable because when the public health officials, who I don't suggest must be infallible, they are humans, they make mistakes, things move quickly, I get all that. But the problem is not that they are fallible, in my view. The problem is that they pretend they are infallible and 
basically try to posit that they are above scrutiny. And this is the big concern that I have here, because we know that the public health apparatchik, if you will, has been infiltrated by people that have political agendas. And I'm not even talking just about Canada here. But you look at the World Health Organization and the unquestioning deference that the Canadian government and Canadian public officials have to the WHO and the unquestioning deference that the WHO then has to China. And all of a sudden, you have the Chinese regimes talking points filtering their way not just through the WHO but then through all of the countries in the world like Canada that decide to hold up the WHO as being the gold standard of science and health and evidence. So when there is an admission like this that, yeah, we could have acted sooner, it's okay, well then why are we mocking and berating people for questioning the Canadian health officials when the Canadian health officials are able to recognize, hey, you know what, we, got, we didn't get it right here, however muted that admission has been. And there was a great line about this that came from Andrew Scheer. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer said on the earlier in the week that Canada has been following a policy of appeasement with China. And I've talked about in the past Canada's appeasement of China, but that is actually the guiding principle of Canadian foreign policy, and I'd say even Canadian domestic health policy right now. It is a, a policy of appeasement, appeasing the WHO, appeasing the Chinese Politburo, whether it's Patty Haidu saying that there's no reason to distrust China, or Justin Trudeau saying that any questions about China are not questions for today, but questions for yesterday or tomorrow, and then when tomorrow comes, oh no, no you missed it, they were, they were yesterday's questions questions. No matter when you asked Trudeau, it was always a, another day that you were supposed to have asked that question. So all of this is going to get a heck of a lot worse as China ramps up its propaganda efforts. And the context of this, of this comment by Andrew Scheer, was that Trudeau has waited until now, after weeks of bucking anything about China, to even remotely go tough on China or even give the illusion of going tough on China. So one example of this is supporting Taiwan's bid to have observer status at the WHO. Well, up until now, China, Canada has been completely ignorant that there is this brewing controversy. And, you know, at one point, the foreign minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, wouldn't even say Taiwan. Whereas I'm like, let's do beetle. I'm, I'm, I'm like, we should Beetlejuice Taiwan. Just Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. We should just say it three times and hope that all the Chinese bureaucrats vanish into dust when we do. I mean, this is a, a country, and I'm going to say country, that we should be hitching ourselves to as much as possible, not just because Taiwan has an incredible track record when it comes to coronavirus and pandemic containment, but because as the lone democracy, that tiny little uh, democracy uh, in this part of the world that so desperately needs it, we should be strengthening 10 times over our relationship with that country. But this is indicative of a Canada that is waiting and waiting and waiting, and then eventually when they do something that is close to the right thing, it's so delayed and has come after so much equivocation that you can't even really give them any credit for it. And the point that Scheer said is that Trudeau's government must have done some polling, and that's when they started to change the message on Taiwan. This is what he said. I have to say that on this matter, you know, it was only recently that the Trudeau Liberals in any way changed their tune uh, on this. And don't be fooled by Mr. Trudeau's phony statements about, uh, about China right now. We have been raising the alarm about this government's failure to stand up for Canada, its policy of appeasement to the regime and the PRC, 
And it's only now after they see some polling data that they've started to change their message on that. We have been calling for the government to pull out of the Asian Infrastructure Bank, to step up inspections of Chinese exports into Canada, and show the PRC that there are consequences for illegally detaining two Canadians and pushing Canada around. Justin Trudeau has refused to do that. He refused to do it in the last parliament. He refused to say anything about that during the last campaign. And it's only in the last couple of weeks that he's changed his message at all. And I don't know if there are any people listening or watching to this show who think that I'm being a bit too tough on China, but lest you think for a moment that Canada is doing anything other than focusing on the relentless appeasement of China, take a look at this line from Karina Gould. Now, Karina Gould is the International Development Minister in Canada. She was asked about the WHO, which has promised an independent review, and I'll talk about that in a moment, of its reaction of the global response. And she was asked whether there should be some skepticism of China from the WHO, and this is what she said. Uh, the question was whether the WHO should be more skeptical of China given the behavior of that government. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that that's the place for the WHO because the WHO is a, a product of its member states. And I think that each member state can push for openness and for transparency. I'm not sure that that's the place for the WHO because the WHO is a product of its member states. And I think that each member state can push for openness and for transparency. So the whole point here is that, oh, well, the WHO, they're just like a jukebox. You know, uh, China pushes a button and gets a song and Canada pushes a button and gets a song. Whereas she's saying uh, it's not for the WHO. So she says they, they're supposed to be a neutral body that is just the gestalt, you know, the sum of its parts, I guess greater than the sum of its parts in that case. But ultimately, they shouldn't be the ones to have any skepticism of China. And I'm like, well, if not the body that is aggregating and collating and filtering this data, then who else? Who else is supposed to, if not the WHO? So it's funny that now Canada is playing both sides of this, because on one hand, we're saying, oh, no, no, we're listening to the WHO, and, and it's not our job to question China. The WHO is the global body. They're synthesizing all of these data and these figures. And now when WHO is in the spotlight here and getting a bit of a questioning that is desperately needed, the Canadian government is saying, well, you know, they're, they're just like, uh, you know, they're, they're just a reflection of their member states. It's not their job to do anything. So I'm like, so again, whose job is it? Whose job is it to criticize China? It sure as heck isn't the WHO's in the Canadian government's books. It sure as heck isn't the Canadian government's job to criticize China. The Canadian government wants to play nice guy to everyone. Well, the heavy lifting on NATO, on the UN, on the WHO is done by the United States. And what do we do? We stab the US in the back every chance we get. China desperately needs to be taken down a peg or two or 17, not just because they're wrong on this and because they have had a reckless disregard for human life in their own country and around the world, but morally it's the right thing to do. If you believe in moral leadership for a country, which I realize is a questionable area for a lot of people, but Trudeau is the one that says Canada needs to be a leader morally. Well, why is he only devoting himself to trying to attack and snipe at the U.S.? instead of the real moral enemies of freedom and the real uh, economic enemies of free countries like China. 
So we have a complete deference from Canada to the WHO, a deference from Canada to China, and now a belief from Canada that the WHO is supposed to be deferential to China. And again, I'm at the point here of if this is all an elaborate game of 3D chess and Trudeau's trying to play nice so that he can rescue the two Michaels that have been imprisoned there for over a year now, then where are the results? If this is all just some elaborate negotiation strategy like Justin Trudeau's defenders and pretenders try to make it out to be, where are the results? If there is not a first-class flight from Beijing to Toronto with those two Canadians on it, I'm sorry, it's hard to say that there is no, it's hard to say there is any credibility for the Canadian position with China being anything other than appeasing. It's not a strategy, it's not negotiation, it is appeasement. And we don't just have a, an appeasement of China, but an appeasement of all of the bodies that China itself is being appeased by as well. It's appeasement all over the place. It's an appeasement palooza. That's what Canada is doing with China, with the WHO, with the UN, and it's got to stop. And by the way, the World Health Organization, I think, is only doing this independent review, and independent give me a break, but this supposedly independent supposed review because they are terrified of the U.S. funding cut. Because remember, the U.S. has put its funding to the WHO, which basically props up the entire bureaucracy there under the microscope. And the WHO needs to do something to save that. And I think that this is going to probably be a charade. I mean, maybe, just maybe, if they can, you know, appoint, you know, Mike Pence to lead the task force or something, there might be some some benefit to it. If they appoint Patty Haidu or Teresa Tam to lead the task force, I, I don't anticipate us getting too much out of it. But there needs to be, at the very least, more transparency there. And I would look at the WHO being embroiled in this, I'll say, Scandal seems like too minor a word, but embroiled in this cloud of doubt. And here's what the UN is focused on right now. A tweet on May 18th, so that is Monday, from the United Nations. What you say matters. Help create a more equal world by using gender-neutral language if you're unsure about someone's gender or are referring to a group. Policeman's now a police officer, landlord is owner, boyfriend, girlfriend's partner. So if you, you bring a new uh, boyfriend home to meet uh, mom and dad, uh, you've actually committed a UN hate crime. It's your partner. Which, as a 16-year-old, you don't have a partner. You have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Anyway, a salesman has to be a salesperson, manpower, workforce, maiden name, family name, and so on. So, you know, this is like the standard thing you'd get out of any sort of liberal arts program at any university in North America. So there's nothing radical about this. But it's like, does the United Nations not have bigger fish to fry right now? Bigger fish that a fisherman or... Fisher person has has fished out of the global geopolitical pond. Is this really the big priority for the global political leadership right now? Apparently it is. Apparently it is. So uh, maybe the end, maybe the independent review at the WHO will just reveal that they've been using the wrong pronouns uh, for the last year and nothing to do with the pandemic or the coronavirus, but they accidentally called, uh, you know, a doctor ma'am or sir. And, and you know, that was... Uh, what the review unearthed. But this is why, I mean, these international bodies, you know, some of them, you, you might say they mean well. And I think it used to be that of all of these, like the UN and the UN Refugee Agency and the WHO and all of these, that the WHO was the one that I think people had more tolerance for because, well, it's, you know, global health. But, but now that they've actually been faced with a test and they've been just as political as every other UN agency... 
run by a, a fake doctor and with just this complete and absolute deference of China. Like, I don't even know why they bother to have uh, a China delegation to the WHO when the WHO is the China delegation, but that's neither here nor there. So all of this is going to be a Canadian cross to bear. The WHO countries have unanimously approved of this independent investigation. And I will say that it was Australia that was pushing for it, and eventually the UN uh, was really forced into a corner here because the EU backed it, the UK, a bunch of African countries, but they don't actually mention China in it. It's a call to action, but they don't actually mention what I would say is probably the primary need for a review. They've just said we need an independent investigation. So it's not even clear. They're investigating themselves. I mean, this is the whole point, is that I don't think anything about this is going to be independent. But I will read the exact text of it, that uh, the member states call on the UN to, quote, initiate at the earliest appropriate moment and in consultation with member states a stepwise process of impartial, independent, and comprehensive evaluation, uh, dot, 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 to review experience gained and lessons learned from the WHO-coordinated international health response to COVID-19. Now, if you understand what any of that said, uh, you are actually probably well-suited for the UN bureaucrat life. But it's to initiate at the earliest appropriate moment impartial, independent, and comprehensive evaluation to review experience gained and lessons learned. So this is not an accountability tool. I want to make this very clear. This is not about admitting they've done wrong. It's to say, what did we learn? Let's turn this thing that has killed uh, so many people around the world that has impacted millions, let's turn this into a teachable moment for all. So that we can all just go and, and you know put up a chart and say don't say police off or don't say policeman say police officer and all of that stuff. But this is not going to be a, an accountability measure. So when people say we need answers from the WHO, they aren't saying that they want a report and a kumbaya song out of it. They're saying that we want a, a recognition that they have royally screwed a lot of countries, Canada included, and the United States included. And to do this in a way that is just so completely and utterly devoid of recognition of their own wrongdoing makes them no better than China, but actually worse than China because they're supposed to be the ones that are questioning China. So yes, Canada's appeasement of China needs to stop, but also Canada's uh, really bad tendency and dangerous tendency to go all in on Inter international organizations needs to stop. Remember, Tr Trudeau has been devoting essentially his entire premiership to wanting to be on the UN Security Council. This has been like Justin Trudeau's primary goal. If he gets nothing else out of being in power, this is what he wants, a seat for Canada on the UN Security Council. So all of this, and he's been like <laughs> cavorting with African dictators to do it, which is great. You know, he's standing side by side with the guy who, you know, thinks homosexuality should be uh, punishable by life in prison. And, and Trudeau is, Trudeau wouldn't even let, uh, you know, someone, you know, <laughs> do, like go to a church that he didn't like in Canada. But internationally, if he needs your vote on the UN Security Council, he'll, he'll go for it. So the whole point here is that we go whole hog as a country into these international bodies and we get nothing out of them. All we do is lose and put ourselves in situations like the one we've been in throughout the course of the pandemic here, where we are suffering by virtue of having this inextricable and inexplicable link with the WHO and with China.
And that's got to end. So we got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. One of the things that we have heard in the course of the pandemic, a lot of support for has been the innovation that a lot of companies have brought to the table. We mentioned last week Canada Goose, which has started to retool. And I don't even want to single just one. I guess I am going to single one out. But tons of companies around the country, around North America, around the world have started to use their ingenuity and uh, their ability to adapt to make things that are necessary for the pandemic, whether it's auto manufacturers making ventilators or, or so on. And, you know, new inventions are coming out. I know people are working on vaccines and improved testing and all of this. And then every now and then you get one that looks more like it belongs on an as seen on TV ad rather than, you know, in a pandemic response measure. This is an, an invention that is a coronavirus mask that lets you eat without taking it off. I, I can't even describe it. I will just show you the uh, prototype promo clip. <laughs> there you go. I, I, it's been like described by NBC uh, Dallas Fort Worth as being like Pac-Man where it just, you know, goes across the screen. I thought it looked like one of those really modern uh, ventriloquist tools that they do where they get people to put on these, you know, like mouths that open and close and then they control them with a little pump at the back. I thought it looked more like that where there was one I saw on some one of these. I think it was like a Merit has got talent or something, a woman that was using them, uh, you know, a mask that you can like eat because that's the whole point. If you want, want to eat when you're wearing your mask, you've got to like pull down and do it. Whereas this one just has a little button. So if you're going out for dinner with your friends, you can open the button, uh, put the food in, release it, and the mask closes, which, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I, I'm not a, a specialist in infectious disease or a virologist. I, I can load you up the wazoo with caveats galore. I would say that the point of the mask is the fact that it does not open, generally speaking. I, I might be wrong. There is nothing about this that suggests there is anything that remains a mask about this. So I, I would say that if you're going out to dinner with friends, perhaps you can just not wear the mask. Now, but this is the kind of thing when people have nothing to do in quarantine, when they can't get their haircuts, uh, this is what they invent. So anyone that thinks that, you know, they can do their best work when they have no distractions uh, clearly is not uh, the inventor of the mask that becomes no longer a mask, otherwise known as not wearing a mask. In any case, uh, if you want one, we'll uh, we'll try to get a supply with like True North branding on it or something. But uh, <laughs> good good luck with that. Uh, one one of the stories I wanted to mention here was, and I would say that this is just an example of, of government going completely overboard all the time. You know, just as uh, you know, this isn't someone fined for social distancing, but it is still a, a story of someone faced with the uh, horrors of the bu bureaucracy here. An Australian man who freed a whale that was caught in sea nets has been fined by authorities for rescuing. So he was a good Samaritan. He saw a whale trapped off uh, the waters of the Gold Coast in Australia, and there were calls to officials, but no one responded. Hours went by without a response. And so he decided uh, that he would just take matters into his own hands and go. Now, I, I've never seen these things before, but they're there essentially to protect sharks from getting to areas of the beach that people are swimming in. 
And in this case, a whale uh, was trapped in it. So he went over, saw the whale, and started untangling him. He had a knife, and he was able to unwrap the whale's fin from the nets, which is just an app. Like, all of this terrifies me, by the way, because anytime uh, you've seen a, an animal that's freed, uh, they don't know you're freeing them. They think you're trying to attack them further. Uh, so he did it, and then he ended up getting fined. Uh, some reports have said for... <laughs> The fine was for tampering with nets, even though arguably the whale was tampering from it. Now, on the weekend, I actually had uh, a much less exciting animal rescue operation. An owl had fallen out of the tree in front of uh, my house, and one of my neighbors, and actually pretty much all of the neighbors, were descending around this uh, thing to try to save it. And my dad uh, was helping with something, and he ended up being the, the rescuer who put the owl back in the tree. And then the owl, again, didn't realize he was being rescued, so then he like flew out of the tree again and back on the ground. And then uh, the second time he decided to stay up there and, and they were gone next time we saw the tree. So uh, that was the rescue. So take that Australia whale rescuer. <laughs> In any case, let's talk a little bit about some of the impacts of small businesses or impacts to small businesses of being shut down. Because I, I saw this video go viral the other day and it, it goes back to April but it was a, a restaurateur who was pointing out the problems with food delivery apps. And he was saying that websites like, you know, Foodora, DoorDash, Skip the Dishes, whatever. I, he wasn't talking about any one of them in particular, but they are making a fortune off the backs of restaurant owners. This is what the, the guy was saying, Paul Schufelt. And he's from Edmonton. He runs a, a place called the Workshop Eatery Woodshed Burgers. I've been to Edmonton, but I've never been there. And he talks about in this little uh, chalkboard presentation here that if a restaurant uh, sells something for a dollar, they get a dollar out of it. Now, of that, they have to put, you know, 33% into labor, 33% uh, into COGS, cost of goods, 19% uh, into variable costs. So things that go up and down, like you're buying your food and supplies. And then 10% 10, 10 is fixed cost, things that no matter how much business you have, you have to pay for, your rent, your heat, your insurance, all of that stuff. So he said that a profit for an average restaurant will be five cents on the dollar. So he said then when you go to the food products here, in the course of people getting stuff delivered, it changes quite a bit. And the numbers make sense. So, you know, the restaurant still has to spend cost of goods, 33 cents, 20% on labor. Uh, variable costs are the same because they're buying food. Fixed costs are the same. But then to give to a third party 20 to 30 cents on the dollar, which is what a lot of these apps cost, they sometimes lose. So his point is that you may actually lose money on this by selling it through a food delivery app. Third party delivery drivers, they take... 20 to 30 cents on every dollar or 20 to 30 percent of every single order placed even if you're doing everything excellent you're doing great here you've had to lay off your service staff you've laid off your support staff and you're losing money anywhere between 2 and 12 percent and i've seen a, a lot of people that i know in the restaurant business that have shared this and say absolutely these things are hosing us I've also heard from other businesses that have said these food delivery apps are giving them business they otherwise wouldn't have. So I'm actually a bit perplexed on this one because the free market libertarian in me says, okay, if you're a restaurant and you're losing money on this thing, then you're better off not making the sale at all. Just don't participate in these apps. Run your own delivery, run your own takeout. A lot of restaurants do that as well. I don't get what the problem is. 
But then there's the other part of me that realizes, yeah, there is a, a predatory nature to these things. Because remember, the food delivery app doesn't have a lot of overhead. They don't have a food supply. They don't have real liability. All of their employees are actually contractors. So, you know, even if right now in my city, everyone were to say on a Friday night, we're not ordering delivery through these apps, the company itself is out very little. It has its central office operating costs and that's it. It's like Uber. They're companies that really have no assets and, and no significant overhead because most of their workforce is contract. I get all that. But at the same time, I look at this and I say, all right, so the problem with this is that I've had terrible experiences trying to get through to restaurants now because they're so busy on delivery right now. And I think it's probably tapered off a little bit, but, but earlier on, I mean, we had tried to like order pizza, you know, earlier on in the pandemic and it was like a two hour wait and, and stuff like that because they were doing so much business. And my wife and I try to support local whenever we can, especially with, with food businesses. So we've been using these and some of them, the only way you can get delivery is by going through skip the dishes or uh, one of these other apps. So I, I want if you are in this business, to let me know your stories here. And I'm going to devote an episode next week. Not the whole episode, but I, I want to read some of these stories. Uh, if you're in the food business and you've had experience one way or another on this, because the part of me is, uh, is saying, listen, if you are losing money, don't do it. And if there are enough restaurants that are losing money, why have restaurants not themselves coalesced and said, we're going to run our own delivery operations or we're going to pool delivery? Because that's what it used to be. There were places that I knew of years ago before these food delivery websites were around that would hire, like there, there'd be a delivery driver that splits his time between all of these different restaurants. And that was fine. And you know, if you call up you know, Ming's Chinese Kitchen, and they don't have their own in-house delivery guy. They call up this guy that they use that he's also the, the delivery driver for Freddy's Pizza and also the delivery driver for, uh, you know, Wang's Chinese Kitchen on the other side of the street. And the, these are actually real real restaurants I, I know of, by the way. I, I don't know if they're around now, but my, my, my knowledge is dated of these. But, so I, I don't know why they can't just keep doing that because I'm assuming there, there's still a, a pool of people that do this sort of delivery. Because the one thing I don't like is is places that tend to complain about things while furthering the problem themselves. So that that's why I want to get a bit more information from your stories on this about if it's that simple that you lose money on them, why use them all together? Because even not using them and, and then not making the sale costs you zero dollars, where according to the chart from uh, Paul Schufelt uh, that I played a little bit of, you, you'd lose two cents to 12 cents on the dollar. So uh, anyway, let me know about that. I'm going to take a break here. When we come back, an update on the Nova Scotia shooting and why it proves even more of a dishonest grab of firearms from the Liberal government in Canada. That's coming up on The Andrew Lawton Show in just a moment. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. It was just an absolutely awful, awful experience for the people in April in Nova Scotia who were around and surrounded by just the horror of 22 people being killed and what we now know as Canada's most fatal shooting, most fatal spree killing. And, you know, I, I look at the stories that came out of that, and I said early on I didn't want it to be about the politics of it, and, and I resented that it had to be. I resented that Justin Trudeau and Bill Blair made this about gun control. 
And the more that we've learned about this shooting, the less that narrative makes sense. We learned that the killer didn't have a gun license, that the killer's guns were owned illegally, that gun control, even the prohibition that the liberals rammed through a couple of weeks ago, wouldn't have made a difference at all in stopping this, preempting it, or even mitigating this. And then this story came out on Monday or Tuesday, rather. It was an interview with one of the witnesses who I would actually say is one of the heroes of this story here, a man by the name of Leon Jowdry, who knew Gabriel Wartman, the killer, and who has been so traumatized by what happened that he hasn't been able to return to his home in Porto Pique, Nova Scotia. Now, Jowdry is interviewed in a a CTV Atlantic story here. He was the one who ultimately rescued the killer's girlfriend, who, remember, was, you know, confined and threatened, and then she escaped, was hiding in the woods, and then she ended up knocking on this guy's door, and, and he let her in. And what happened here is that this man saw that there was flame and a SWAT vehicle, and he knew that it was that killer's house. He said, you know, frankly, he wasn't surprised to see that here. He said he had had run-ins with Wartman before, didn't like the denturist, knew that the guy had old police cars, but he never saw them with uh, police decals. Uh, So what happened is he saw the fire, saw the police presence. He grabbed his shotgun, went home, and he said he was going to just shelter in place and, and stop there. And he stayed there until the morning when the girlfriend or former girlfriend was pounding on his door. Uh, she told him what had happened. He called 911. They came, vehicles, six of them, SWAT, all of this. But I, I'm giving you the setup here to tell you this part that I, I think is so important. He was asked why the shooter didn't go to his house. And he said he suspects it's because the killer knew that he was a hunter and had guns in his home. He said, quote, he knew I had firearms, which are legal, of course, but he knew I was confrontational and might interrupt his plan. That's the only thing I can think of. It's speculative, clearly. But there's an important note here that this is a legal gun owner who, when everything is happening, SWAT teams are there, fires ablaze, emergency response, all of that. He grabs his shotgun because he knows that's the only ability to protect himself. And if imagine if he didn't have that and the killer had showed up. I mean, there's a chance he would have been among the 22. He would, would have been the 23rd victim. And that is an absolutely horrific thing to think about. But this was what he had to think about in that moment. And when the girlfriend shows up needing shelter, knowing that Wartman's after her, he had a shotgun, a legal shotgun to protect himself, to defend himself. So what better contrast is there that he's a member of the community that is being vilified by the liberal government right now when he's the only one that would have been impacted, not the killer, by any sort of prohibitions, regulations, or advanced restrictions on gun ownership in Canada, which is what the liberals are hell-bent on pushing forward. And it's not about the what-ifs, the woulda, coulda, shouldas. It's not about all of that. It's about the recognition that is a very simple contrast, that when it comes to the two groups, legal gun owners and illegal gun owners, only the legal gun owners are impeded and influenced at all by gun restrictions and gun regulations. The illegal ones aren't. So you could take away this guy's guns, and all it would mean is one more victim to a shooter. 
especially in rural areas. And by the way, one of the things he said is that, you know, guns are so ubiquitous in this part that when he heard gunshots, he didn't really think anything of it because that's not a, an uncommon occurrence. And there is a, an urban-rural divide there. I mean, if you hear, if I hear a gunshot in my city, I'm like, wait, what's going on? But if I'm up at my friend's cottage or whatever where we shoot in the backyard, it's like you, uh, rarely a day goes by that you wouldn't hear a gunshot of some kind. In fact, when there isn't one, you wonder like, oh, what's wrong? I wonder where, uh, wonder where Joe is today uh, and all of that sort of stuff. So for all of this, we need to be understanding who the bad guys are. And the bad guys are not the ones that are grabbing a shotgun because they think they might need to protect themselves against a madman on the loose. The bad guys are the madmen. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all who tuned into the show and wrote in my email address if you want to touch base, andrew at andrewlawton.ca. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.